0: Big stories, big guests, the big picture.
1: Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. There are certainly uh, many uh, national security challenges that Canada faces, both foreign and domestic. Many of those explored uh, in the book, uh, our next guest wrote, and we'll talk about that. But one of those issues is in the area of what's known as IMVE, Ideologically Motivated Violent Extremism. Now, there was uh, a Commons Committee uh, hearing on that very topic next week, at which uh, our next guest testified. There was a story today, the CBC obtained a a briefing note from CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, uh, that finds as much as they're trying to stay on top of this particular threat, they're facing many challenges. In fact, many of the same challenges as their counterparts in the U.S. are facing, and faced... Uh, in the lead-up to the, uh, uh, the riot in Capitol Hill uh, back on January 6th of last year. Uh, so it, it is a unique challenge, and maybe in this whole realm of national security, it's, it's one that our leaders uh, don't focus on as much as they should. Uh, to quote our next guest, Parliament's general lack of interest in national security legislation is unfortunate. Indeed it is. Uh, Stephanie Carvin is an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, author of the book Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security, which has been shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize. Professor Carvin, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on in that very kind introduction.
1: Well, I appreciate you joining us. And and look, congratulations on this. I mean, it's obviously very prestigious for anybody who writes a book on any topic. But clearly, you know, you were motivated to to write this book because you feel this issue isn't getting the attention it needs. I I guess it's, it's noteworthy then that the Donner Prize appreciates that. Maybe our political leaders could take a cue from that.
0: I hope so, but yeah, it was very much that. Like, um, you know, my background is I worked in national security with the government, and often, um, you know, my job was to help um, prepare, um, you know, you know, senior managers to go testify in front of parliament, and then you would watch these parliamentary proceedings and. You know, it was quite clear that, um, you know, it's not that the people were stu- stupid. And I want to be clear about that. It's not like mm-hmm. they, they, they didn't have brains or anything, but they just didn't know about national security. Like if you ask them about health care policy or if you ask them about, you know, uh, education or any other, you know, important issue, things that can care about and should care about, they were very good. But when it came to national security, they, they really didn't know what to ask. They didn't really know how to engage on the issue. And so I thought, okay. Well, you know, I'll, I'll write a book, i write a book about it. And, and what what is it that what are the threats that we as a country have to think about? Where are these threats going? And and, you know, what are the big kind of takeaways from that?
1: Right. And, and obviously, I mean, look, you know, politics comes into play and it, it's easier when we're talking about healthcare policy or education policy. I mean, maybe there's inherently some level of, of politics that exists when, when you're talking about policy in that realm. How much does it complicate, though, conversations around national security?
0: So, I mean, I think the major difference is, like, we've all had experiences with the healthcare system. We've all had, you know, we've all been to schools, you know, these kinds of things. We all, you know, we all have an understanding of the environment and, you know, can have different positions on climate change. But, you know, we all have, you know, we're all very aware of the weather around us you know, we're really lucky as a country that we don't have to think about national security uh, a lot. We we have the opportunity to kind of live our lives, um, not worry about terrorist attacks going off all the time, not worry about, um, you know, war, like say in Europe right now, we're, we're kind of insulated from that. So I think that kind of partially explains why, you know, it, it, it's, it's almost a good thing that we haven't had to take national security seriously. But As those threats change, right, as, you know, um, espionage now is, you know, you don't have to actually send someone over to Canada and and create a false identity and and have them out there. You, You can hack into computers and steal data and then hold that data hostage or you can put it all over the internet to embarrass people. Like there's lots of different things you can do with it that kind of really just changes the nature of the threats we follow. So I think that that partially explains why this is an urgent issue, but perhaps why we haven't really felt the need to address it until
1: now. Right. When we talk about ideologically motivated violent extremism, now, now most national security issues have that component to them. At least when we talk about uh, you know terrorism, international terrorism, domestic terrorism, there's an ideological component. But w- are we talking about something more specific when we, we talk about IMVE?
0: Right. So... We used to kind of talk about terrorism as one thing, right? Like, like there's just terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've tried to create a little bit more nuance now in the debate. When I say we, I mean the government of Canada. So um, we really, they've taken terrorism and divided it into kind of three different categories. Imperfectly, but but I think it's kind of interesting. The first is religiously motivated violent extremism. So, you know, lots of different kinds of, of, of violent extremism here. But it's the kind of... Um, Violent extremism we have uh, in the last 20 years associated either with Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State-inspired extremism. But there have been, you know, throughout Canadian history, um, you know, other kinds. There was Duke War extremism, for example, in the 1920s. Um, that was a real problem in, in Canada because they would burn down buildings. So people who are um, re- like motivated for a religious cause, a further religious cause. Uh, the second is a political cause. And so these are different kind of separatist or... Um, in some cases, perhaps even Marxist movements around the world. Um, one of them we w- refer to as the kind of um, Khalistani separatism in uh, India, for example, is, you know, th- there have been links there to um, um, violent extremism. And then uh, finally, we have this kind of odd category called ideologically motivated violent extremism. And if it's, it's kind of vague. It's because there's no clear you know, creed or purpose or cause, it's really what we're talking about is violent extremism that's motivated by a collection of grievances, beliefs, um, grudges, and things like this. Um, and and it, it doesn't really, you know, we, a lot of times we, we talk about far-right extremism, which, which fits in here, too. But there's other kinds of extremism as well. Um, you know, um, there, there's certain kind of um, far-left extremism, for example. Um, you know, if we talk about, uh, you know, people who bombed research labs because they test on animals and things like that, like that would be considered ideologically motivated violent extremism. But the kind of ideologically motivated extremism we worry about now tends to come from, you know, neo-Nazis, from um, far-right extremism, from hate groups. Uh, from incels and voluntary celibates, um, people who believe that society is rigged against them so that they um, um, can't ever find a, a sexual partner, for example. So um, these, are that, this is kind of now assessed to be the primary threat of violent extremism to Canada.
1: And, and distinguishing, I guess, between, you know, the ideology itself and where it represents a threat. I mean, PETA doesn't bomb those those facilities that test on animals, but PETA as an organization is very much entrenched in that kind of ideology about, you know, animal rights and animal liberation. I mean, you know, there's the Parti Québécois, is not the FLQ. Sinn Féin is not quite the, yeah. the IRA. I mean, there's these examples where we distinguish between these ideas and those who take those ideas too far.
0: Right, and I, this is a really important point, right? So um, you have, the, I would say, like all the groups you just mentioned, they're they're political, right? We we yeah. can violently disagree with them, but they're not violently actually, <laughs> non violently <laughs> yeah, disagree yeah. with them. Um, we can we can very much disagree with them, but they're political. And then you have people who are extremists, right? So you have people who then believe that you know, usually someone who who believes that the system is fundamentally corrupt and needs to be replaced. Um, so you know, you have you know people who you know, have, you know, kind of maybe out there views, but they want to work within the system. You have then extremists who kind of reject the system as a whole need and believe that eventually it's, you, know, you can't work within it or it has to be your place. But then you have the, the, the category of violent extremists. And that's where the national security picture comes in because you're allowed to be a, a political, you know, have odd political views. You're allowed to even have extremist views. But it's when you ask on those views violently that this kind of national security threat emerges and that's that's really where CSIS and RCMP comes in now the challenge today is that um, a lot of the stuff we hear conspiracy theories like QAnon um, which is you know I, I don't know how to explain that to your listeners but it's a very odd theory about um, um, you know the, the, the really really short version is that uh, governments are run by a cabal of satanic pedophiles um, but the um, other kind of, uh, of conspiracies as well and, and, you know, uh, some of the views that we saw expressed during the um, convoy, for example, um, that are about, you know, kind of wanting to overthrow the government, again, believing that the system is fundamentally corrupt, needs to be completely overhauled, and things like that. that. Those views might not automatically be a national security threat, but they are a challenge for democracy. And the, the the problem is we don't really have the tools to sort those out. And, you know, we don't necessarily want or should want CSIS to, to be monitoring absolutely everybody who, who, you know, believes QAnon or things like that. Right. Um, but we need to have some kind of societal response. And that's what I think one of the big challenges are, is that. At what point do some of these extremists become violent extremists? Right, that's a that's a hard thing to measure. Um, but also, like, what we need kind of a whole of government response that is not just based on national security, but really kind of a whole of of, of you know different departments and agencies kind of thinking about well, how do we counter disinformation? How do we um, get people to not lose faith in the system that has, you know, generally made a good life for not everyone, but a, a, a lot of people.
1: Well, yeah, the convo is an interesting example because there were a lot of different individuals, a lot of different groups involved in, in that. And, you know, you had people who were just expressing their political view, joining in in a protest. And obviously, I mean, we saw with the, the arrests here in Alberta, there were those who were prepared to go much further, were prepared to engage in violence and, and murder yeah. police officers, allegedly. So there's a manifestation of, of that kind of national security threat emerging from a much bigger movement that's not necessarily or inherently violent.
0: Right. And I think that's a really good example. So, like, if you look at the convoy, a lot of the people who were involved in organizing it, I mean, I think you could argue they had some pretty extreme views. Like, they believed, um, you know, some of them are arguing for Western separatism um, or, you know, they had kind of some racist and misogynistic views. And, and those are problematic views, I think, from a Democratic perspective. But until you ask on them violently, until, as you point out, those arrests in Kootenay, Alberta— um, where you had people with guns getting ready to to actually act violently on those views, mm-hmm. that's that's that that's an important distinction to make.
1: It is so. There, it's it's an obvious challenge here, right? In 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 you know, knowing when to act and and not just monitoring entire groups of people because of their political views. So, is it's that is that part of where the challenge lies, or how much of it is is also structural in Canada?
0: So I think there's a number of problems. One is that. You know, regrettably, I think for a long time, we've only really considered violent extremism as coming from one source, and that's Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and extremism. It was never true. You know, um, mm-hmm. we can look back, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the 2010s, I mean, we had a number of attacks, whether it's the shootings of the RCMP officers in New Brunswick. Um, there was a plot to do a shooting at a um, Nova Scotia Mall. Um, that was led by someone who who definitely holds um you know, nazi views uh there was of course the shooting at the quebec mosque all these were you know violent extremist attacks but we didn't really consider them as such because i think we ourselves had a very biased view as to what violent extremism actually is and so i think the first thing is is to kind of widen our understanding with it you know trying to ground not not trying to again, subsume or call everyone terrorist, but to understand that, you know, this is something that is 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 far more pervasive and um, you know, maybe it's a bit harder to recognize because, you know, let's be blunt, a lot of people who engage in this kind of activity are white. <laughs> and we just haven't considered these people as, as terrorists for, you know, a number of reasons. So I think that's one of the challenges. Um but also just, you know, I I, I worry about other things as well. Like Um, have we been training people on this? You know, um, do we have the right resources to help people recognize what violent extremism is? And that's important, um, just simply from a societal perspective, because, you know, 50% of lone actor plots are um usually have some kind of leakage so in other words someone usually understands what's happening and you know if those people go to the police you might be able to disrupt those 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 threats but also our law enforcement in in particular are they being trained on what this threat is and and how it works um are we providing support to um, a lot of the communities who are affected by this i mean there's a the community resilience fund that the government puts out, but you know it takes years for that money to actually reach the 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 kind of institutions the cult you know cultural institutions that we 're trying to protect from from hateful attacks um and and you know i mean it 's good that we're putting up defenses but like are we actually tackling the problem um and and, and you'd rather than and rather than giving every you know mosque or a synagogue, a camera. Um, should we be doing more to kind of dispel a lot of these hateful views that are out there, and, and to try and do this? So I think I think all of this. And then the final thing, and you mentioned this when you know you introduced this segment, is that um, a lot of the authorities that we have to actually work in this space are very outdated. Um, thesis, the CSIS Act was written in 1984, when like the most. Um, powerful technology out there was a fax machine Mm -hmm. and now we carry our lives around us with the phones but we don't really have a good solid base for understanding what the rules are when it comes to investigating this and this is really important when we're thinking about far-right or IMVE extremism because um you know a lot of this happens online on the internet Right, this is, this, is the, this is where these movements exist. They're not small cells of individuals, you know, making plots. These are people online who belong to kind of these broader based ideological movements. And so to what extent do we want to have um, law enforcement agencies on the Internet um, or what powers do we want to grant them in order to actually investigate these threats? Uh, and get information quickly um, without violating the charter and the right to privacy and things like that. And these are things that Parliament has just not addressed, um, despite the fact that we have had, you know, various national security um, officials, like the director of CISA, say multiple times, say, look, our powers are outdated. And if you want us to deal with this, you need to figure out how you want us to actually deal with it. Um, it's not about granting CISA everything it wants, but it is about Modernizing our approach to these issues and how spies should be engaging on the internet in in the 21st century.
1: We'll leave it on that note, uh, Stephanie Carvin. Always appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
0: Hey, thanks for having
1: me on. All the best. Uh, Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University, author of the book Stand on Guard, reassessing threats to Canada's national security, as mentioned, shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize and uh, testified last week uh, before the Commons uh, Public Safety and National Security Committee. So trying to call attention to these issues. We'll see if government is is prepared to, to take any of these steps. Well, as we learned last week, Twitter has or is about to have a new owner. I don't think this is uh, officially a, a done deal in terms of, you know, there, there's still an opportunity for this to, to collapse or back out or something. But otherwise, the plan is for Elon Musk, uh, the Tesla billionaire, uh, to take over Twitter, the social media platform. Now, Elon Musk seems motivated, not necessarily by, by money here, but uh, on some principle here that he believes Twitter uh, offers something valuable and it needs to do so better than it currently is. Now, what that ends up looking like, it's, it's not clear, but it, it seems based on what Elon Musk has said, he sees uh, Twitter as having a free speech problem. In other words, Twitter needs to be more of a vehicle for free speech. So how do we advance that? It's an interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail today on one obvious way that Twitter could do so. Uh, to send a message to countries where free speech is not protected, that that's not okay in Twitter land. For example, uh, take a couple of countries here, China and Iran. Citizens of those countries do not have access to Twitter. They can't use Twitter like we can. Uh, But their governments, state agencies, certainly can. So why does Twitter allow that? Maybe the message should be, look, if you're going to deny free speech to your citizens, we're going to deny it to you. I think we can all get behind that while well, joining us to talk more about this idea and his op-ed piece, which is mentioned in today's Globe and Mail. Uh, Kaveh Chirouz joins us, a lawyer and uh, human rights activist, also a senior fellow with the McDonnell Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Kaveh, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
2: Good to be with you, Rob. Thank you so much for having
1: me. Uh, This has always seemed like like an odd set of circumstances where you you have this double standard. uh, Governments deny Twitter to their citizens and then they use it themselves. To whom are they speaking then if their citizens can't read what their governments are saying?
2: Well, I mean, these are governments who almost by design, don't care what their citizens um, think and they don't care to keep their citizens informed. So really they're not engaging in a dialogue with their own citizens. they're engaging in a dialogue with the rest of the world, um, and primarily with the, you know with the democratic, free world. Um, their leaders and their top government officials are on these platforms trying to push them favored message. Of the regimes um, out to the world, while denying their own public the chance to kind of come on these platforms and give a true picture of what's happening in these countries.
1: Right. So, I mean, it's essentially about trying to spread propaganda in in Western countries. So, at some that,
2: level, that's exactly yeah. what it is, right? It's it's just unfiltered, unchecked propaganda. Um, and unfortunately, for too long, Twitter and other social media platforms, but Twitter really primarily um, they have provided the the venue for this and have taken no steps to counter it
1: right and you know it's interesting because look I mean Twitter, whether it's the old owners or the new owner, I mean they, they can have their standards, they can make decisions on on who and what gets access to to their platforms, and reasonable people can disagree over whether. Now, Alex Jones should be on Twitter, or I guess even Donald Trump for that matter, but it does seem like a double standard, doesn't it, when, well, I mean, Russian officials were just recently uh, removed from Twitter, but otherwise, China, Iran, even, you know, Turkmenistan, Russian North Korea countries that that you note in in your piece, uh, they they still have access to this platform.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, and part of the reason why I wrote this op-ed was I was trying to uh, provide a very simple suggestion uh, to Elon Musk and his new management team. You know, there are very hard questions about whether or not, you know, people like Alex Jones or Donald Trump should be allowed on, on the platform. I am somebody who errs on the, or like my default uh, view is that there should be more speech, not less. Mm-hmm. But there is a very clear line here that I think um, just any uh, basic sense of fairness um, would tell you is being crossed right now, which is that, you know, as as you mentioned, um, leaders of dictatorial regimes are keeping their own people off the platform and just using the platform to propagandize. And I think um, whatever your conception of free speech, that um, violation of fairness should not be permitted.
1: And that's the thing, and that's where you know, social media could be a tremendous good. If, if you know, the, the owners of Twitter, if that's Elon Musk, can use that leverage you know, to, to crack open that door. I mean, a world where the citizens of China... Can freely use Twitter. The citizens of Iran can freely can freely use Twitter. That to me seems like a better world.
2: That would absolutely be a better world. Now I don't know if it's within Elon Musk's power to get China or Iran mm-hmm. to permit their citizens um, onto that platform, uh, but at the very least, he should you know stand in the way of them. Gaming the system, so to speak, and um, allowing these to become propaganda, allowing the platform to just become a uh, propaganda tool. And I think if we t- take that first step, at least there will be an incentive for the leaders of these countries um, to think twice about whether or not they're going to prevent their people from accessing uh, platforms like Twitter.
1: Now, certainly when it comes to, to China, and we, we see a lot of this hypocrisy in, in the corporate world because there's money to be made in China. You know, you don't want to, to cause waves. You don't want to make trouble with, with China. And I, I wonder if Elon Musk is any different. I mean, Tesla does a lot of business in China, for example. I mean, what should we expect when it comes to issues like this from him?
2: You know that's that's a great question. That's really anybody's guess at this point. I too am a little bit um, reluctant to jump on the Elon Musk bandwagon. I know there are a lot of people cheerleading for him, saying that you know he's going to be great for free speech and so on. At least one one side of the political spectrum feels that way, um, precisely for the reason that you mentioned. You know his relationship with China, the fact that he's been willing to operate in a place that's actually openly engaged in genocide at the moment against its, it's uh, Uyghur population. Um, you know, if he's not willing to stand up for them, I, I, I'm a little bit skeptical that, that he will be able to stand up or is, would be willing to stand up for the principle of free speech here at home. But I guess it remains to be seen. So once this transaction clo- closes, um, we will get a better sense of what Elon Musk is about. Um, you know, expectations will certainly be high and people are going to be watching very, very closely. So...
1: Uh, as to I mean you know part of it is as you say is about sending a message, but you know just on on principle uh should should Twitter not be accessible to uh china's leaders should Twitter not be accessible to Chinese state media or to to the Iranian government you know would t- social media be a better place would Twitter be a better place if it closed its doors to that propaganda
2: Well, I think that's a tough call um i don't know if Twitter would be a better place without um those actors on there. Um, you know, I, I think in an ideal world all sorts of actors would be on the platform and they would be able right. to give their version of reality and we as the audience would be able to assess it and uh decide, you know, which version we want to accept. The problem right now is that there's a thumb on the scale, right? Um, you know, you got She's government or, or Ayatollah Khamenei in Iran or Putin. Um taking away the rights of, you know, billions of people um, to access. And so what we get right now is a very askew picture. And so that's not that we're very far from the ideal. So all I'm asking in my op-ed is for uh, Twitter to kind of step in and at least, uh, you know, equalize the the situation at the moment.
1: Yeah, it seems reasonable to me. Uh, The piece is up at theglobeandmail.com. Much more at uh, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it.
2: It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Rob.
1: For- Take care. Uh, Kavish uh is a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest abroad. He's a lawyer and a human rights activist and says, look, if Elon Musk wants to bring free speech to Twitter, this would be a great way of striking a blow for free speech. To say to these countries, look, if you're going to deny that freedom to your citizen, we're going to deny it to you. Uh, that would send quite a message. Now, obviously, it would not go over well with the Chinese government. And I do wonder to what extent, you know, that, that might, uh, might guide Elon Musk's hand in making such a decision. But these are tough calls to make for this kind of a platform. Is, is it worth being able to see the claims being made by these repressive governments? And, and the ability for people to say to them, you're full of it. You know, I recall recently there was uh, just a, an absurd statement posted by the Russian embassy in, in Ottawa. And just the reaction to it was, was almost delightful. There's, there's something to be said for uh, telling a repressive government, you know, where, where to stick their, their BS propaganda. And I'm sure they're, they're not used to hearing it. But at the same time, do, do you want to be a vehicle for that if you're one of these companies? If you're the owner of Twitter, do you want Twitter to be a vehicle Uh, for Chinese government propaganda or Iranian government propaganda. Now, as uh, Kaveh notes in his piece here today, after the invasion of Ukraine, Russia blocked access to Twitter, uh, to Vladimir Putin and and his cronies, but a lot of Kremlin-affiliated accounts still do regularly post to Twitter, and that includes, by the way, the the Russian embassy in Canada. So there's still a lot of that on Twitter and other state media like uh, RT and, and Sputnik. So that would be an interesting place to start. I'm, I'm not sure if that's going to be on Elon Musk's agenda or how exactly he intends on changing Twitter. And, you know, as Cave points out in his piece, you know, even well-intentioned free speech advocates are going to encounter hard decisions on where to draw a line. So is it anything goes on Twitter? Or do you still have some standards? He says, will racist tweets be permitted or Holocaust denial? And whose definition of racism or Holocaust denial should be used? Because there was so much discretion, these free speech battles are likely going to rage for years to come, regardless of what Elon Musk does or doesn't do on, on Twitter. <music> Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge, with you here on this Monday afternoon on number 4039748255. Last week, the governor of the Bank of Canada acknowledged, and it was an interesting acknowledgement, acknowledged that they misjudged, that they underestimated inflation at the start of the year, and pledged to act as forcefully as necessary in order to make up for that misjudgment. And in his words, we, still, we got a lot of things right. We got th- some things wrong, and we are adjusting. So obviously, look, if the Bank of Canada governor is acknowledging mistakes, then clearly the bank is not infallible. By extension, the bank is not above criticism. But it's interesting that there's been a lot more of that criticism, a lot more focus on the bank and monetary policy than maybe there's been in the past. Do we have a good understanding, though, of what the bank's role is, what it does and doesn't do? So, by all means, you know, the bank is is fair game for criticism. But the starting point needs to be an understanding of what it is they do. Uh, To that end, there's a really interesting piece at The Line, uh, the Substack newsletter, theline.substack.com, sort of making this point. That we need to better understand what it is the bank does and doesn't do. So that if we are going to criticize them, which we should when they get things wrong, um, that we're doing from an informed perspective. So joining us uh, to talk more about this issue is the uh, author of this piece. Stephen Gordon is an economics professor at Laval University and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Gordon, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Obviously, look, you've, you've covered this for a long time. You've followed these issues for a long time. Does it feel to you like we're seeing more criticism of the Bank of Canada and, and more conversation around monetary policy than we've seen in a very long time.
3: Yeah. Um, some of it is kind of in, you know, I have to say it's in bad faith. Um, you know, some the in fact, I think the uh, I think the senior deputy governor is going to be giving a speech very soon to clarify what the uh, the bank's role is and in, in, uh, you know the in, in governance and poli- in politics. It, it, monetary policy works best when it's um, nonpartisan. It's supposed considered to be outside of the political arena. Uh, the government uh, gives the Bank of Canada a mandate. Uh, like it, like the, the objectives of monetary policy are determined by elected representatives. And that mandate is to, uh, target to inflation at 2%. Right. And the bank is given complete operational autonomy to, uh, achieve that target. So, uh, it needs that autonomy because it may because almost all of monetary policy these days consists of managing expectations. Like what it actually does is usually less important than what people think it's going to do farther down. And, uh, any, any monetary policy run by politicians we've learned to our cost, uh, um, is not, is not basically, doesn't have that credibility because everybody knows that politicians have other things on their plate aside from monetary policy. So, you know, they might mean things, they might want to do something, but they, they could change their mind if something else comes up. Uh, so that's why, that, that's why it's kind of, and really important to sort of have this distinction. Like it's, it's, it's For example, it, it's not appropriate for the government uh, to comment on the conduct of monetary policy. It's supposed to leave the bank to its job. So in some sense, the, a lot of those criticisms of, you know, why isn't you know, Justin Tudor talking about inflation? Well, he's, he actually should not talk about inflation. It's, he, should let that, he should be leaving that to Tiff Macklin.
1: I do wonder, I mean there's a perception maybe of of a of a blurring of the line between fiscal policy and monetary policy. You can talk about yep. that because part of it's based on this this notion that the bank quote unquote prints money, which isn't true. But the bank does what's known as quantitative easing. They they buy large amounts of bonds, which I suppose by extension does facilitate the borrowing that constitutes fiscal policy. So does does that leave the bank open to this kind of political criticism? Well, <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'm glad you said that it didn't front money because it didn't. Um, the uh, when the when the when the federal government uh, you know borrowed issued a lot of bonds like you know bonds are IOUs they right. had issued a bunch of IOUs they were bought by the private sector, and then the private and then the Bank of Canada bought them from the private sector. And the proceeds of those sales, okay, the private banks, like the chartered banks, basically, they have, you know, reserves, they have, they have an account at the Bank of Canada. The proceeds from those sales basically stayed in the, at the Bank of Canada. Like, they, were, they did not get injected into the economy and circulate. So, like, the, that money creation story that uh, we often tell in, uh, you know, in our second-year macro courses uh, didn't happen. So yeah like so what kind of quantitative easing does is it reduces interest rates and, uh, for example, like you know during uh, 20, the summer of two thousand and twenty when the governments needed massive amounts of money to cover the the costs of the various income support measures, um, if they had gone onto the market you know, trying to borrow you know several hundred billion dollars in such a short amount of time financial markets would have seized up because, you know, anybody who's trying to borrow, I mean, anybody who's trying to renew their mortgage, anybody who's, you know, just needed some short-term financing for their, for their business, um, they would have been squeezed out if the bank had not shown up. And we have seen a huge spike in interest rates at pretty much the worst time possible. So, yeah, like that's what quantitative easing did. It just made sure that interest rates did not spike.
1: Where does this notion of, of printing money come from? Is, is it, you know, are people just sort of using that as as shorthand for, for what it is the Bank of Canada is, is doing? Or do people legitimately believe? I mean, we picture these countries where they got wheelbarrows full of, of money because inflation's run crazy. But where, where did that idea come from that there was something the Bank of Canada does?
3: Well, I mean, it is, you know, it is understandable because in some sense, that's what we teach in our basic courses. You know, like the, you know, one version is, um, the bank the federal government um, issues bonds bank of canada buys them and then the federal government goes out and spends that money and that goes into circulation and you know a huge amount of liquidity in circulation and generates inflation so that's you know that's that is a story that happens mm-hmm. uh... it certainly happened in the past and in in other countries Um it didn't happen here in canada in twenty twenty um, another option another story we tell is that um... that uh, the Bank of Canada buys bonds from the private sector, and then the private sector now finds itself with excess reserves, and then they loan that money out. That money is lo- that money that is loaned out gets spent, and it also increases liquidity and in when you, when you, what we think of as money, and generates inflation. That uh, that other story we tell too in uh, in our courses, but that didn't happen either. Okay, the, re- the reason why it's special this time is that interest rates are really really low, and also. Which is something we don't do, t- telling us in our uh, in our uh, lectures, is um, those reserves that we call settlement balances. They're basically reserves. I, mean, I think it's I think it's easier to think about reserves. They pay they they pay interest. So the chartered banks were very happy just take that money from the Bank of Canada, leave it sitting at the Bank of Canada, earning interest because interest rates are really low. They're not going to they're not going to get a better return anywhere else. And so basically, the we have, you know, one exchange, the government gets, gets money from the, bank, from the private sector, no increase in money supply. Right. The private sector gets money from the Bank of Canada, but it just sits there in the vaults. It's as if, yes, you know, you know money was created, but it's still sitting in these giant, can, you know, a bunch of containers in a warehouse somewhere, not actually circulating. So it's, it is very understandable to, to think that what the, government, what the Bank of Canada did during 2020 was create money. Uh, but that's not actually what happened.
1: It's interesting, too, and and you note in your piece that, you know, one area where the bank has been criticized, and even as I noted in the introduction, you know, Tip Macklem has acknowledged that they underestimated inflation, but, you know, in in May of 2020, the spring of 2020, where in the early days of this pandemic, the bank was really concerned about deflation. Uh, The previous governor uh, even warned about deflation, which in hindsight, as you note, seems really off-base, but why was it a legitimate concern at the time?
3: Well, because we've been fighting off in uh, deflation or disinflation for, uh, for the past decade. Okay, since the, the, the financial crisis of 2008-2009, uh, central banks around the world have been in a situation where you know, inflation is below, you know, below target. And, you know, he's, he's said, like I said in the piece, that might seem like a weird problem to have, you know, inflation being too low. But you know, deflationary periods where prices are actually falling are never times of prosperity. These are, they only happen during defla- depression. So, for example, if, you know, just think if, you know, what, you know how much are you going to spend if you know the price is going to go down? Like, you're not going to buy a new car now. You know the price is going to go down next year. Why not? Why You're not going to buy it now. Well, if nobody's buying now, then what's happening to output and production You know, it's just cascades forward. The deflations only happen during depressions. So that was a really bad situation. We were talking about depression, uh, depression level shock, Um, you know, the the loss of we had like 15 percent drop in employment in the the space of two months. And that was like one and a half times as bad as the loss of employment during the Great Depression. And that took four years to happen. Okay, This is a massive, massive shock. Uh, you know, yeah, you, it made sense to worry about this bad shock persisting and causing, you know, a decade, you know, decade long recession, depression, even.
1: Well, and why do you think though that that it, it took them so long to recognize that inflation was was worse and maybe longer lasting than than they initially thought, even say a year ago?
3: Well, I mean it's it was it's a very it was a very strange uh, recession because there's all of these um you know the, the supply issues, right uh, that's usually not a problem. so like this is very new for for the bank and for all of us um you know like people are looking at well, you know a lot of these you know increases in prices are simply due to you know supply chain blockages. you know we see containers piling up at the port of Los Angeles, and you sort of think, okay, yeah, like there's that's a shortage that's going to generate higher prices, but you also know that. Well, those shortages, you know, like they'll they'll finish, you know, they'll finally get around to, uh, you know, getting all of those containers out of the port of Los Angeles. These things will settle down, and then we'll return to normal. And so, you don't want to increase interest rates just like that, and then find yourself, you know, oops, hold it, we didn't, really didn't have to increase interest rates because inflation came down anyway. So they were expecting all these um, all these disruptions, you know, all these supply chain disruptions, all these. Uh, uh, disruptions caused by, um, you know, the uh, public health measures, they were expecting all those things to go away, and they probably will, but it turned out they didn't go away too quick, quite, you know, as quickly as they thought, and then while that was happening, it turned out that all those income support measures turned out to be perhaps overshooting, you know, very understandable, given the, the, the circumstances, uh, the one thing they didn't want to do was to do too little. Right. So it, a lot of that, um, those extra, you know, that income support was saved and, you know, built, there's a lot, certain amount of pent-up demand going on right now, and that's, that demand side, I think, was kind of snuck up on them.
1: Well, it's interesting. We saw the GDP numbers today, which you know are, are still pretty strong, and I guess it, you know it, it sort of gives um, you know the bank more validation of this this uh, new aggressive uh, posturing that they have when it comes to trying to tame inflation. But you know, there's there's the potential impact of the the uh, you know the slowdown in in China and all the lockdowns there. The conflict yeah. in Ukraine is is having a huge impact. That, that, could,
3: that could possibly explain why they well, why they were so slow. You know, they mm-hmm. you know they you know they. These are judgment calls. Um, you know, there, certainly there are people who, at the time, were you know, perhaps disagreed. But you know, they, they have to make a judgment call, and, and uh, you know, the fact that they made a mistake, it's like, well, you know, everyone makes mistakes.
1: Well, be below your piece, it's up at the line, theline.substack.com. Really interesting read, Professor Gordon. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Much appreciated. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, that's Stephen Gordon, professor of economics at uh, Laval University. So some interesting thoughts from him on kind of the role that the bank plays in understanding what it does and doesn't do. And by all means, you know, they're, they're certainly not above criticism, but it's important to understand all of that. So back in 2003, uh, some unusual bones were found in a cave in Indonesia on the island of Flores. Eventually, we learned that this was evidence uh, of an early form of, of humans that we, we didn't know had existed, what became known as Homo Floriensis, or the florist man, also known, nicknamed as the hobbit, because these early humans were very tiny, you know, just over three feet tall. So their existence came as a bit of a surprise. We hadn't previously known that they'd existed. We didn't know where they evolved from. We didn't know what had become of them, when and how they became extinct, or I guess even the question whether they became extinct. Now, that last question might seem a stretch. After all, we're dealing with uh, species that existed going back some 50,000 years when modern humans uh, started to arrive. The island of Flores is a populated island to this day. But that's where one part of this really interesting story comes into play here, is those who live on the island have some very interesting tales about their own encounters, which lends some credence to the notion that maybe this early species, the so-called homits, didn't actually go away. Well, that's the provocative theory that our next guest advances in his new book. It's called Between Ape and Human, An Anthropologist on the Trail of a Hidden Hominoid. Uh, Dr. Gregory Forth is a uh, professor emeritus of anthropology at the University of Alberta. The book is uh, to be released this month and is certainly uh, raising some eyebrows, attracting some attention. Joining us to talk more about it is the aforementioned uh, Dr. Gregory Forth. Dr. Forth, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
4: Oh, well, thanks very much for inviting me.
1: Well, and and, uh, this is a fascinating topic. I'm looking forward to to delving into this. So so first of all, you know, there's been much written about this already, a lot of reaction, including from from your peers in in anthropology. Uh, What have you made of all of the the attention and the reaction thus far?
4: Um, Well, I'm pleased by it. I mean, anybody who writes a book (laughs) likes people to uh, pay (laughs) attention to it. And and indeed... uh, Read it. So um, I'm pleased, and I um, I welcome criticisms. I uh, very often, I won't say always, but uh, very often I uh, am able to counter the uh, the criticisms. Uh, as, as you said in that very nice little introduction, um, but very informative indeed and accurate. Um, we, we simply don't know. Well, with any species, uh, in fact, we can't be entirely sure uh, if it, uh, if it is uh, if it is instinct extinct I should say uh, and in this case uh, I mean one, one thing that that uh, strengthens that point is that um, the remains of uh, Floresiensis, uh, the so-called uh, hobbit um, thousands of years ago is the date uh, put on those remains um, they were found at a single site on, on what is a fairly a fairly large um, a fairly large Indonesian uh, island so you know I, I mean it goes without saying that they must have uh, lived elsewhere, especially as they existed over uh, tens of thousands of years, a period of over tens of thousands of years, maybe much longer uh, on that island. So, yeah, they didn't all live in just the one cave and uh, you know, all, all go extinct at uh, at the same time. Um, at the same time, the um, reports I have, especially from part of the island called uh, Leo, that's I O um, have people describing uh, a creature which, which sounds very much like uh, it's a, an exact fit you could uh, say uh, with with the uh, reconstructed uh, um, physical form uh, and the inferred behaviour of, uh, of, of Floresiensis and, and uh, there are I talked to over thirty people who um, during several visits to Flores uh, who, who Claim to have uh, have uh, seen. Um, specimens of uh, the ape men as I call them, and um, uh, the circumstances uh, of the sightings and what they what they told me um sounded uh, very very much like uh, uh, well like like a, like a a real creature, not not a you know a fantastic being or a, a forest spirit or, or or what have you um, so in the book I, I go into a number of uh, possible explanations for these uh, sightings for what people have seen or what people um, you know say still exists in their uh, uh, territory and um, one of those um one of those possible explanations hypotheses as we say is that uh, they saw something um something real. They saw, they saw you know, an actual creature uh, that stands and walks on, on two legs, is very small, um, generally hominoid, human-like, uh, but with a rather apel monkey-like uh, face, uh, especially. My, my conclusion is that of all the explanations you can think of, such as that they're seeing local monkeys or, or that they're seeing nothing at all, um, that, 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 that uh, they are actually seeing something. Something, um, is the best conclusion, you know, based on, on, uh, on, on reason and based on the evidence uh, that we can come up with.
1: Now, there are those who have said and will say that it, it, it sounds similar to, you know, claims in North America of, of a different kind of ape like human like creature, you know, the, the idea of of a Sasquatch and, and there's all kinds of compelling tales of what people think they have seen. Right. I guess notably when we're talking about the island of Flores, we are talking about something that indisputably once did exist. Does that make it different to you?
4: Well, it does make a, uh, um, it does make a difference. You, you've hit the nail on the head there. We, we have uh, remains uh, of uh, not just Florisiansis, but, but a very much older uh, and uh, similarly small, in fact, smaller by all indications, uh, hominid. Um, so, which is something you don't have, of course, in North America. Uh, we don't have yet with the um, with the Sasquatch. Yeah. Um, also, um, the uh, area concerned, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, is home to living apes. Not the island of Flores, uh, not eastern Indonesia, but western parts of Indonesia, like uh, Sumatra and, and Borneo, still have orangutans, uh, and even more uh, numerous are several species of, uh, uh, of gibbons. So, it's, it's very much the right kind of place, uh, I would say, to... To uh, to find um, small hominins like uh, um, Homo florensis, floresiensis, um, possibly still um, existing, surviving into uh, I- into modern uh, times. And uh, in terms of the dates of uh, some of these alleged sightings, uh, you know, we, we can say uh, um, until uh, very recently, indeed. You know, in- including during the last. Uh, the last decade. So uh, all all these factors make um, Flores, or rather the ape men, I should say, not to confuse the two, much more credible than than Sasquatch. At the same time, I don't want to uh, say that it is absolutely impossible that uh, something like Sasquatch, a very much larger animal, by the way, um, uh, still exists. But but, uh, the the, the ape men of Flores are, are a much more likely proposition.
1: Uh, you know, and, and certainly, it's it's widely acknowledged that these these legends do exist, and and that these descriptions are, are pretty consistent with what we know about the uh, you know the so called Hobbit. Uh, uh-huh. what, what are what is the, the nature? How far back do do these do these local legends go?
4: Uh, I wouldn't know how much, how far back they, they go, but, but uh, there are indications from uh, the writings of uh, of missionaries uh, on Flores that uh, the um, the name of the eight men, which is in the local language, is, is Lajoa, and the general description of something that um, uh, you know looks generally human-like but it is small and and, and so on, um, that goes back uh, prior to colonial times. Um, uh, and certainly uh, before a period when anybody, any, any local people on Flores would have been uh, would have become um, familiar with uh, you know human evolution, paleontology, and, and these other uh, the the these other sciences. So um, yeah, no, way. The, the the notion of the ape man we can say was certainly a, um, an independent invention, if you like, uh, an independent development among uh, Flores Islands islanders. And one thing I argue for throughout the, the book is that we we need to uh, take more seriously what uh, what ordinary folk uh, say about the animals in the uh, in the places that they're uh, familiar with, very familiar with, as a matter of fact.
1: Well, presumably, I mean, if if, if they do still exist, we're talking about I would think what would be a, a very small community of them, wouldn't it be?
4: They are described as rare, which is uh, another thing that lends them credibility, you know, people aren't seeing them in their backyard every other uh, weekend sort of thing um, so um, yeah, you know, I mean that is another uh, another point uh, in, in their favor, it's even possible of course that uh, um, they, they existed until recently, survived until recently but, but they have become, uh, they are now extinct, you know extinct within the last uh, decade or two or, 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 uh, or maybe longer, at the same time there are these extraordinarily compelling uh, uh, accounts of uh, of sightings which are more uh, more recent than that, I mean going back uh, uh, ten years or, or, or twenty years um, sort of thing and um, yeah no i mean it 's just some some local accounts that uh, uh, are compelling, but there are a few that could be put down to mistakes, uh, mistaken identifications of uh, exceptionally large uh, monkeys. There is a species of monkey on the island. Uh, it's called the long-tailed macaque, and as the name uh, indicates, the long-tailed macaques have, uh, have tails longer than their bodies. They're, they're generally very small, of course. They're smaller than uh, three feet long, certainly, the, the bodies. And um, the ape men uh, don't, don't have tails. I mean, if, if we could be uh, convinced that uh, they had tails, then, then they couldn't possibly... Uh, uh, be in our, our, our family, as it were, in, in the genus Homo, uh, they would have to be some kind of, uh, some kind of monkey they couldn 't even be apes because uh, um, what, what quite, a pe- uh, quite a few people seem not to know is that, that apes like chimpanzees and gibbons and orangutans do not have tails. in fact, uh, gibbons have even less of a tail than human beings uh, uh, is uh, something interesting to mention i think well
1: what 's interesting to me I mean at some level you know it 's impossible to disprove a negative, but on the other hand that, that this is something that is potentially knowable uh yeah. that, that you know we could we could put this to the test we could maybe even confirm this at, at some point i mean if we assume then that this is true for a moment mm-hmm. how significant is such a discovery and and what would be done with that that information
4: Oh, wow um, <laughs> excellent question I, I might just uh, uh, lead off by saying that when the um, the, the, the remains of uh, of uh, the hobbit uh, were found uh, in Western Florries uh, back in uh, what uh, 2003 um, people were astonished uh, there' was quite a few uh, anthropologists paleontologists and so on who, who reckoned that this was a mistaken identification but mm-hmm. this wasn't a New species. This was simply some kind of deformed uh, um, human being, and so on. But and so there's been a lot of debate uh, in the literature. But but it's now generally agreed by people in the know that um, Homo floresiensis is a real species, very distinct from modern humans. Um, in fact, uh, some people dispute whether it, it belongs to the, the genus Homo. Uh, in other words, they suggest that it should be classified with uh, with Australopithecines, or, or, or yeah, you with know, some kind of uh, some kind of ape, rather than some kind of uh, some kind of human. Um, and uh, at the time of the discovery, a, a leading member of the discovery team stated, and I more or less quote that um, he would have been less surprised. Uh, Than by Homo floresiensis, he would be been less su- surprised if if a space alien had been uh, had been discovered uh, on Flores or, or anywhere else on on Earth. So that that indicates the, the, the magnitude uh, uh, of uh, of the of the discovery. To find a living specimen would be at least uh, equally as as momentous as that. I think uh, we can say um, it, it would well, it it would be earth-shaking, almost uh, almost literally, and, and it was certainly um, uh, revise a, a, a lot of uh, the, the common wisdom, uh, if you will, of, of all branches of anthropology, not uh, mm-hmm. just anthropology which deals with uh, distinct, uh, extinct, or presumably extinct kinds of uh, humans or, or, or hominids, but also uh, cultural anthropology, social anthropology, which tends to, and uh, can be even uh, less open-minded, Minded, you might say, than paleoanthropology uh, insofar as there is uh, you know, a common assumption that these things are, are, are completely imaginary, uh, that if, if you need to uh, understand the descriptions, then you, you, you can only understand them as um, ideas which reflect uh, you know, social and cultural uh, values, uh, interests, and so on. In other words, that the images, to use that word, uh, the pictures Uh, presented in the descriptions are are, are fictitious. Um, So, wow, you know, um, I I would become famous probably, although (laughs) I'm not likely to be the person who who finds one. That will be uh, um, somebody else. and uh, So I'll be um, superseded in in, in that respect. But uh, I I would be very happy uh, for for anthropology at any rate in the discovery of a specimen. On the other hand, uh, what it would mean for or, uh, the little beings themselves is is, is another matter and I, th- I think they're, they're probably better off if, if we don't get too close to them, if I can put it uh, if I can you know. put it uh, uh, that way.
1: Well, the book is called Between Ape and Human, an Anthropologist on the Trail of a Hidden Hominoid, available this month. Gregory Forth, thank you so much for joining us here today. Much appreciated.
4: Uh, well, again, very much uh, very many thanks for your interest.
1: All the best. Uh, Dr. Gregory Fourth, Professor Emeritus at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alberta. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast don't forget to subscribe rate and review for free at apple Podcasts, google play or wherever you find your podcast you can also find me on twitter at rob breakenridge. you can email me rob at 770 chqr.com talk to you next time
4: afternoons with rob Breckenridge starting at 12 30 on news talk 770 calgary